Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, welcome to this episode of the Cardiovascular Prevention Series, where we discuss all things lipids with Drs. Nishant Shah and Anne-Marie Navarre from Duke University. But before we dive in, I'd like to let you in on a little secret. Just between us, the CardioNerds are about to launch a brand new and very exciting series, which we will be introducing in upcoming episodes with Dr. Julia Grapsa, Editor-in-Chief of Jack Case Reports, and Dr. Nosheen Riza, Chair of the ACC Fellows in Training Section. We are really excited to be diving into this brand new series in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology and countless fellowship programs. And as we begin to release these episodes from this new and top secret series, we will be pacing out the episodes from the Cardiovascular Prevention Series. Because just like any top shelf wine, these episodes are best enjoyed one precious sip or episode at a time. But remember, keep that between us for now. Without further ado, let's take a journey through the mysterious and greasy world of lipids. Remember, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by cardioners who just love cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning about lipids directly from two spectacular cardioner experts. Cardio nerds, we're very excited to dive into the greasy world of lipids and cholesterol management in this key installment of our Cardio Nerds Prevention Series. We're incredibly honored to be joined by two very special guests and absolute experts in this area, Dr. Nishant Shah and Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre, joining us from Duke University. And I have the distinct privilege of introducing Dr. Nishant Shah. Dr. Shah obtained his medical degree from Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He completed internal medicine residency training at the Johns Hopkins Osler Program, where he was my senior resident. He moved to Ohio for cardiology training at the Cleveland Clinic, where he continued to be my senior and an incredible role model. And uh, actually, Nishad, I don't know if you remember, but when I interviewed at Cleveland Clinic, it was you and Terrence who took me and Rahul Langani out for dinner. And it just uh, started us off on such a good note. So, you know, you've made us all proud here at the Cleveland Clinic when he joined cardiology faculty as staff, as a preventive cardiologist. Dr. Shah is well-published in the field of prevention. He's also a new dad and so much more. Dr. Shah, I have no idea how you do it all, but I'm so glad that I've had you to look up to all these years. Wow. Thank you, Amit. That was very kind of you. And I must say, I'm still learning how to be a new dad. It certainly helps to have friends like you to get fantastic tips uh, on how to manage this and work and everything else. So thank you. I am super honored to join you guys today. I'm a huge fan of the series, uh, definitely a cardio nerd at heart. And so I definitely appreciate all of the amazing content you guys provide. I'm also super excited to introduce a close colleague and friend in Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre. Dr. Navarre is a Duke lifer. She's obtained her medical degree at Duke University School of Medicine, but also has a master's and PhD through the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She went on to complete her residency training at Duke University Medical Center, followed by her cardiovascular disease fellowship at Duke as well. She is truly a force to be reckoned with in the space of CV prevention and lipidology with numerous high-impact publications in the field. She is an outstanding clinician, mentor, teacher, and leader. Her patients and mentees love her. 
And when talking to them, I've also learned a lot of other hobbies and passions that Anne-Marie has. For one, she's an extremely talented artist and is a collector of fine art. She is the heart and soul of the Duke softball team and a spiritual leader of the team. She's also the starting catcher with the nickname of Lil Dragon and holds the Durham Softball Rec League record for the only swinging bunt home run in league history. Very hard to beat that. Wow. Well, consider us impressed. (laughs) Thank you, Nishant. I just have one very important correction as it's my only sports achievement. That swinging bunt was actually a, a grand slam. And it tied up the game for my mentee, Mike Nana, to have a walk-off home run to send us to the championship. So as a full-on cardio nerd, it's literally the only sports achievement of my entire life. And perhaps... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, perfect. perfect. (laughs) So that that was my biggest accomplishment in fellowship, I, I still believe. Well, Dr. Sean and Tafara, thank you again so much for joining us today. We are all so excited to learn all about lipid basics and management. So let's dive in. You know, friends, speaking of being a parent, I've been really getting to story time with my two-year-old son, uh, who will actually be three tomorrow. So happy birthday to him. To honor him, why don't we go ahead and get started with a story. So there was once a boy named Cholesterol, his friends called him Cole, and a girl named Triglycerides, Tracy for short. They went out partying one night at a sizzling new club called the Brisket Bar. Fee-fi-fo-fum enters a giant with a particular taste for red meat. Hungry as ever, he eats the brisket in one foul swoop, and everyone inside, including Cole, Tracy, and all their macronutrient friends. (laughs) Oh, poor Cole and Tracy. So Dr. Shaw, can you walk us through their journey through the giant from that point onwards? Absolutely. Lipid metabolism can certainly be quite complex, but to help understand it in a little bit more clear fashion and to better understand the therapeutic targets that kind of work along the way of lipid metabolism, I like to break it down into two pathways. The first being the exogenous pathway. So everything our friend Giant just ate or dietary fats starts first becoming digested within the stomach and the duodenum by gastric and pancreatic lipases. These fats are broken down into fatty acids, phospholipids, triglycerides, free cholesterol, cholesterol esters, etc. And these particles can then be taken directly into the liver via the hepatocytes and continue on through the digestive tract by biliary missile formation and subsequently into the circulation via the lymphatics in the form of chylomicrons, which are composed of cholesterol, triglycerides, and other apolipoproteins like apolipoprotein B. Chylomicrons are further broken down by protein lipase to create chylomicron remnants and free fatty acids that our muscles and adipose tissue essentially use, either to use as energy or store as energy reserves, respectively. Remnants can also further be metabolized into LDL particles. So it's important to note that these chylomicrons that are circulated from the exogenous system into the circulation are big particles full of triglycerides that aren't in itself as atherogenic. People with chylomicronemia have really high triglycerides and are at risk of pancreatitis, but not necessarily heart disease alone. So as these chylomicrons are broken down into the remnants of VLDL particles that are formed, LDL particles that are formed, and these particles have increasingly higher ratios of cholesterol ester triglycerides, which are actually more atherogenic. And so that's the exogenous pathway, what we kind of take in, how it's broken down into our digestive tract and can distribute it in our circulation. 
Now there's also the endogenous pathway, where these chylomicron remnants and nutrients from that exogenous pathway are then further absorbed into the liver by the hepatocytes. Here, glucose is converted into cholesterol with a key rate-limiting step with an enzyme by the name of beta-hydroxymethylglutarol-CoA reductase, or HMG-CoA reductase. Cholesterol made by this pathway combines with those nutrients and remnant particles taken in by the exogenous pathway to create very low-density lipoproteins again, which are then secreted into the circulation and again converted into LDL particles and further metabolism. These LDL particles are then taken back into the liver from the circulation through a receptor called the LDL receptor that is also recycled by a protein called PCSK9. So overall, when you have an abundance of these lipoproteins in the circulation, either by excess exogenous intake or by genetic mutations along the way that increases their prevalence, it accelerates the process of atherosclerosis as these particles then enter the vessel wall, become oxidized, and internalized by macrophages to form foam cells and then further downstream plaque formation. So I think it's important to note if we're talking about this story of, of Cole and Tracy, when we start with triglycerides and cholesterol esters, they actually don't float around in our body as cholesterol and triglycerides. They're all packaged up into different lipoproteins, either chylomicrons, VLDL particles, LDL particles, or HDL particles. And all of those have a mix of cholesterol ester and triglycerides, and they all have a single ApoB molecule sitting on them. So the way that we can actually estimate the number of particles that are circulating around our system is to check an ApoB level. When you actually measure a lipid panel and you get a cholesterol measurement, you're actually measuring the volume of cholesterol and LDL particles. So that LDL-C measurement you get in a lab is the amount of cholesterol ester and LDL particles. Triglycerides are the amount of triglycerides in all of the different particles that we have floating around. Now, in general, because most of our cholesterol is packaged in LDL particles, it's a pretty good surrogate of what our overall cholesterol burden is if you just measure the LDL cholesterol. But there's some people, and this actually comes up later on in one of our cases, that have a bunch of really small little LDL particles that don't have a lot of cholesterol in them. And those particles are actually more dangerous than big, fat, juicy particles that are cholesterol enriched. And so for the most part, we can check cholesterol, an LDL level, and think about it as a concentration, but sometimes we actually have to check the particle number. Now that everybody understands the pathway of cholesterol, and I promise our answers aren't going to be this long, but it's really important to understand the biology before we move forward. Let's go through quickly the different therapeutic targets we have for LDL lowering. And we're talking about LDL because that's the primary target that lowers heart disease risk. So the first class of agents are the bile acid sequestrants. This is like cholestyramine. These prevent bile acid reabsorption in the gut. And by blocking bile acid, the hepatocytes actually have to make more. And by forcing hepatocytes to make more bile acid, they use cholesterol to make that. They draw LDL cholesterol out of the blood. And so you lower serum LDL cholesterol by blocking bile acids. These actually aren't very good for lowering heart disease risk, but are important to know they're really the only LDL-lowering drug we have that can be used in pregnancy. The next drug we have is azetamibe. This targets a protein called Neiman-PIK-C1-like-1, which block cholesterol absorption in the small intestine. And by blocking cholesterol absorption, the body compensates by upregulating the LDL receptor in the liver so that the liver then pulls more LDL out of the circulation. 
The next class are the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. This is what statins do. By blocking HMG-CoA reductase, you're actually blocking the synthesis of LDL and hepatocytes themselves. And then one level upstream from HMG-CoA reductase is bempedoic acid. It works in the same pathway of HMG-CoA reductase, but it actually works in addition to statins as well. So it can be used to lower LDL even beyond statin therapy, although it's somewhat less potent. A high-intensity statin will lower your LDL cholesterol by about 50%. Bempedoic acid is about 15 to 20%. One important thing about bempedoic acid that's a little bit different from the statins is it's actually a prodrug and it's not activated in the muscle cells. And so it's only active in hepatocytes. And so there's a hypothesis that it may cause less muscle side effects than statins, but the truth is it's pretty hard to tell because a lot of statin muscle aches are probably what we call a nocebo effect. So not real, but people afraid of having muscle aches actually feel them. And then the last target we have is a PCSK9. PCSK9 is what binds the LDL receptor and pulls it off of the hepatocyte membrane and recycles it so that LDL receptor can no longer sit and pull LDL cholesterol out of the blood. So if you inhibit PCSK9, the LDL receptors live longer so they can spend more time clearing LDL out of the circulation. We have two available PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies which bind to PCSK9 and keep it from pulling the LDL receptor off of the cell surface. So these sort of mop up the PCSK9 all throughout the body. There's another therapy that's currently in trials called enclycerin. It also works on PCSK9, but unlike the monoclonals, which mop it up out of the circulation, enclycerin just shuts down the factory altogether. So it's what's called a small interfering RNA. And if you remember back to the very basic biology, if you're synthesizing a protein, goes from DNA to messenger RNA, and then this actually binds to the messenger RNA in the cytoplasm before it can be used to, to synthesize the PCSK9 protein itself. So it's inhibiting the synthesis of PCSK9 to begin with. And those are the therapies we have that lower LDL cholesterol. Wow, Dr. Shaw, Dr. Navarra, that was so incredibly clear and coherent. And the story really is a testament to the pace of innovation in drug development in this arena. Now that we've greased the gears on lipid metabolism, let's put the pedal to the metal and get to some cases from the Cardinard Lipid Clinic. So our first patient is Louis Lowe, who is a 35-year-old man with a history of GERD and obesity, who presents for a routine work physical he actually is a giant who ate the brisket steak earlier in our story. He loves fast food and red meat. He's a never smoker and has no family history of premature ASCVD. His estimated 10-year ASCVD risk is 3.5%. His lifetime risk would be 46% with a blood pressure of 130 over 70, total cholesterol of 220, HDL 30, LDL 140. So, Dr. Shaw, what is your approach to cardiovascular prevention for patients like Mr. Lowe, and how do you counsel patients regarding lifestyle? Yeah, wow, great case. You know, we see this often, actually, in our prevention clinics and lipid clinics. You know, we have here a young person who is at otherwise an overall low ASCVD risk, but has some bad habits, you know, that aren't necessarily heart healthy and has risk factors, too, such as hyperlipidemia and obesity. 
Furthermore, we don't know how active he is, and we have good literature actually showing that sedentary behavior also increases cardiovascular risk. So I think an important point here is to remember one key component of the guidelines, and that's shared decision-making, because there are certain situations where you would consider treating his cholesterol, which we can get to in a little bit. However, from a purely guideline-based perspective, this patient falls into an age group where without a significant family history of ASCVD or an extremely elevated LDL, we certainly would encourage strict lifestyle modifications to help lower his LDL. And again, lifestyle modifications is the foundational treatment, whether you treat a patient's cholesterol or not. And this starts with diet. One way to do this is by consuming either healthy plant-based diet or a Mediterranean-like diet that is very rich in vegetables, fruits, nuts, whole grains, lean animal protein, preferably fish, vegetable fiber. And actually, it's been given a class one indication in our current prevention guidelines. This patient's also obese. And so it'll be important to make sure that his caloric intake is lower than what he's actually burning, sort of the key formula to weight loss, burning more than what you're taking in. And, you know, when we look at the literature we have, we always kind of come across this question, well, how much weight do I need to lose? You know, the more the better, especially if you have a lot to lose. But just looking into the literature, just to give you a sense on how impactful weight loss can be, clinically meaningful weight loss, usually about 5% or greater, has been associated with improvements not only in overall obesity, but blood pressure, LDL, triglycerides, and glucose levels. And also with that delays development of downstream type 2 diabetes. And so to help here, exercise is going to be crucial. The current guidelines recommend at least 150 minutes of moderate exercise in a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. But to lose weight, you need to really bump that up to about 200 to 300 minutes a week of exercise. And of course, not everyone can do that. And so it's important to have that patient-doctor relationship and sort of customize a plan to eventually get them to that position. And like I mentioned earlier, though, there are certain situations where treating the above patient's cholesterol would be very reasonable. And Anne-Marie for sure has done a lot of work in this area because remember, there's a lifetime risk here to consider. It's not just necessarily LDL elevation, but it's also about the duration that this patient has had such an elevation. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better, Nishant. It's interesting that we have a, a totally different approach to treating elevated cholesterol in young people as we do blood pressure. If this person's systolic blood pressure was 145, we would treat him. But we don't treat the LDL elevation of 140. And in fact, the data for cumulative exposure to elevated cholesterol is actually much more compelling than it is for blood pressure, particularly when we think about the benefit of statin therapy and numerous studies that show that the longer you treat, the more you see Kaplan-Meier curves start to separate. So you start to get a cumulative benefit. So there are certain things that I would actually go outside of the guidelines and treat this patient. So first would be if this person was particularly worried about their risk of heart disease, if they had a physical disability or some reason why they couldn't exercise or couldn't lose weight. This is a case where I might check an ApoB to see is that LDL of 140 a bunch of tiny little dangerous particles or a lower number of big, fat, juicy, less atherogenic particles. So there's a little bit of art uh, here that we can practice the art of medicine. And for many people, statins may actually be the right call. 
Wow, Dr. Navar, the art of when to treat low risk is really so useful. I want to tell you about our second patient, Miss Barbara Borders. She's a 55-year-old unemployed woman with a history of hypertension, HIV on antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable viral load and a CD4 count of 540. She underwent premature menopause at the age of 35 is a former smoker, quit six months ago, and does have a family history of early coronary disease in her father and sister. You see her in the student-free clinic since she's uninsured, and she's also asking to speak with a social worker to look for affordable housing. Her estimated 10-year ASCVD risk is 5.4%, with a blood pressure today of 130 over 70, a total cholesterol of 220, HDL of 30, and an LDL of 140. Dr. Navar, how would you approach cardiovascular prevention for Miss Borders? So this woman is a perfect person who can benefit from statin therapy for primary prevention. Lipid guidelines emphasize not just using a 10-year risk score, but uh, what they call risk enhancers. And she's got a bunch of them. A family history of premature cardiovascular disease, which is um, heart attack or stroke in men less than 55 or women less than 65, a persistently elevated LDL cholesterol over 160, chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, inflammatory diseases like HIV, which our patient has, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, South Asian ethnicity. And then the guidelines also have conditions specific to women like preeclampsia, premature menopause, as well as certain other biomarkers like uh, persistently elevated triglycerides, elevated high sensitivity CRP, lipoprotein A, or peripheral arterial disease with an abnormal ABI. So Ms. Borders has a number of these uh, risk enhancers that would bump up her risk well beyond that 5.4 that the calculator estimates. Uh, It's also important to note that 10-year risk calculator is good, but it's not perfect. And it's almost impossible for a young woman to get a 10-year risk score over 7.5%. In fact, the way age and sex work in the pooled cohort equations, you have a pretty low 10-year risk on a population level. So here we need to be thinking about, you know, risk enhancers and thinking about, you know, compared to other 55-year-old women, This woman is probably in the top one to five percentile of overall cardiovascular risk. So um, 100%, if she wants to prevent heart disease, she should be on a statin. And it shouldn't just be if the clinic can provide it. In fact, if you go to goodrx.com, you can get local pharmacy prices and local coupons to get a statin for three bucks a month. It's probably hard to get a high-intensity statin like 40 or 80 milligrams of atorvastatin or 20 or 40 milligrams of rosuvastatin at that price. But you can usually find a moderate intensity statin like simvastatin for a fairly low cost, like $3 a month. And most of my low-income patients are able to afford that. So um, thinking about the cost of drugs, and even if we wanted ideally to put her on a high-intensity statin, and actually in this case, she would be recommended to start with a moderate-intensity statin anyways, Often I will use a lower intensity statin if it's one that I know my patients can afford and that they can take. Thank you so much for reviewing that. I can only imagine that many patients who are quote unquote low risk or borderline risk, but have important risk factors are undertreated because you know their actual risk or lifetime risk isn't perfectly captured by the pool cohort equations alone. So I really appreciate that. Let's move on to our next patient. 
Mona Middleton is a 62-year-old woman with a history of lupus, CKD, hypertension, and obesity with metabolic syndrome who presents to the prevention clinic after her younger sister unfortunately suffered a massive MI. Her estimated 10-year ASCVD risk is 9.4% based on a blood pressure of 140 over 70, total cholesterol 210, HDL 30, and LDL 140. She's had a tough time with adverse effects to her lupus medications in the past, and she's hesitant to start anything new unless absolutely necessary. So Dr. Shah, what would be your approach for Ms. Middleton? Would you recommend a statin? And if so, how would you counsel patients who have so much reluctance to starting a new medication? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, And this is also a very common scenario in a lot of prevention clinics. Um, You have patients like her who have legitimate concerns based on past experiences of side effects. And, you know, now with so many people that are not only on statins, but so much that's out there on Google, in the media, it's hard to not hear about things that could be very concerning. And I think here, it's, it's very important to gauge the patient's level of uh, reluctance and see how willing they would be to take a medication and also really accurately describing their risk because she does, just like our last case, have some risk answers here. This includes chronic kidney disease, a history of inflammatory disease, premature family history of ASCVD. And so yeah, I would favor statin therapy in this case because I think that her risk is actually reclassified to a bit higher than the intermediate risk that the pool cohort equation establishes for her. However, you know, it's very important to have that discussion and see, will this discussion of explaining these other risk enhancers be enough for her to want to start statin therapy? In certain situations, though, patients are still reluctant. And in cases like this, we have really nice diagnostic tools such as coronary artery calcium scoring that can really help provide a personalized risk assessment for a patient, especially someone who is either reluctant to starting a statin because they want more information, or we just don't know whether the statin really be beneficial. And there's a lot of literature out there in the world of coronary calcium. We know that coronary calcium score is independently associated with cardiovascular events beyond traditional risk factors. Coronary calcium scoring, depending on how elevated it is, can guide us in determining if we want to actually start an aspirin or statin therapy in the primary prevention world. And interestingly, there's also a separate 10-year calculator, a risk calculator for patients that have had a coronary artery calcium score from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis that actually helps reclassify a 10-year risk based on a coronary calcium score that they've gotten. And to find this calculator, you know, for our listeners, just Google MESA, M-E-S-A, CAC, risk calculator, and it should show up. Uh, is very helpful in clinic and also pretty impactful when you show a patient with their coronary calcium number what it does to their risk. And so I personally have also had some anecdotal experience here where when I pull up the patient's CT scan in clinic and I show them areas of elevated calcium, you know, it really does motivate them to really take a statin therapy and also get on top of those other risk factors that they may have. And so I think there's a lot of power in seeing your own personalized imaging here in helping guide a decision to start a statin. 
And coronary calcium score also on the other end has the ability to help lower risk potentially, especially if there's a coronary calcium score of zero. However, it's important to understand, and maybe not necessarily in this particular situation, but a coronary calcium score of zero in a younger patient does not necessarily mean that they won't develop a higher coronary calcium score later. But the point here is that it's a very useful test. I'll just chime in here because it, it can be really challenging to talk to patients who are reluctant to take a statin, who've heard bad things about them. And I, I have a couple of things that I will do in clinic. One thing I do with CAC scoring is talk to patients up front about it and say, look, I think you're at high risk of coronary disease, but we can actually get a lot more concrete information about whether or not you have junk in your coronary arteries yet or not. And if it's been there long enough to petrify, then we can see it on a CAC score. So if you have that, we move out of a preventing some hypothetical thing to treating the stuff that's there. And on the other hand, if you don't have any CAC, it means that you might be off the hook for five years. So patients often are excited to get a CAC score because they're hoping that you know maybe the answer is going to be zero and they might not need to take statin. Fortunately, it's not usually covered by insurance, and so it's only available for people who have 100 or 150 bucks out of pocket. I have another thing that I'll do for people who are a little bit worried about statins. I'll say, you know, we can go up to 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, but if you're concerned about the possible side effects, let's start on half of the lowest dose we can get and put you on five milligrams, and then which is a, a tiny fraction of the maximum dose, and then. We'll check your lipid panel and we'll go up on the dose based on your side effects and your response. And most of the LDL lowering from statin is actually in the first part of the dosing range. So you actually get a lot more bang for your buck going from 5 to 10 than you do going from 20 to 25. So often you can get people to agree to take a low dose and then titrate up. And then for people who are reluctant to take a high-intensity statin, this trick also works. You can tell them that you're going to start with half of a dose of 80 milligrams, which is 40 milligrams of atorvastatin, which is actually still high intensity. Um, and I always start with atorvastatin and tell patients, we're going to start with atorvastatin because it's cheaper. We'll switch you to rosuvastatin if you have any trouble. It tends to have fewer side effects. And that way, I sort of planted the seed that there's an alternative we can try. And the nice thing about going from atorva to rosuva is you're cutting the dose in half. So you tell somebody, okay, you were on 40 milligrams of atorva and you had some aches. We'll switch you to 20 milligrams of rosuvastatin. And I think there is a psychological benefit to a smaller pill size and a lower milligram dose. Now, this is um, a little tricky, but that, those are some of the tricks that I do. Interesting. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for going over that. And I have to say, I was really happy to hear both of you use the term CAC score, because in our case discussion, you know, we talk about the coronary artery calcium score and its role in risk stratification a bit, and we start using the, the acronym CAC. No, you're, you're fine. It's not like calling it the bun. Uh, it's actually a thing that we use. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. We right, decided good. we're just going to poll every expert <laughs> and come to a decision on whether we can use that term. Um, so Dr. Shah and Avar, thank you so much. You really highlighted some great points, particularly with patient reluctance to starting medications. And Dr. Shah, as you mentioned, there is so much in the media about side effects of statin therapy and, you know, with the field of prevention, probably even more so when patients aren't actually having symptoms, I can imagine it's really difficult to get started on these medications. And so those are some really helpful tips and really highlights also the importance 
importance of educating our patients and particularly how CAC scores might help in that discussion process. So I want to jump into our next case, Mr. Henry Highland. He's a 76-year-old gentleman with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, and an active tobacco smoker. His estimated 10-year ASCVD risk is 44.4%, with a blood pressure of 135 over 75, a total cholesterol of 210, an HDL of 30, LDL of 140. His PCP had prescribed atorvastatin, but Mr. Highland stopped it due to myalgias. So Dr. Navar, we touched about this a little bit already, but what would you recommend for Mr. Highland? Should he be on a statin? And if so, what steps would you take to manage his statin intolerance? The first thing I'll point out is there's a big difference between myalgias and myopathy. So myalgias are subjective muscle aches without an elevation in CK. Myopathy is an elevation in CK accompanied with muscle pain. And the rate of myopathy with statins is less than one in a thousand. The rate of rhabdomyolysis, so severe elevations in CK, is less than one in 10,000. So the best way to prevent statin intolerance is to talk to patients about it in advance. We know from a lot of studies that a lot of people's statin intolerance is more of a nocebo effect, where the, the fear of the side effect drives them to experience it. Now, it feels really real to the patient. But what I tell people before I start them on a statin is to say, look, I'm sure that you've heard things about statins and heard that they cause all sorts of horrible things, including muscle aches. And it is true that in clinical trials, 30% of people who are asked on a statin have muscle aches. But if you ask the people who are taking the placebo, mm. 30% of people have muscle aches as well. So really, there's no difference in clinical trials in myalgias. There's a 1 in 10,000 risk of myopathy. But then you have to be careful and say, that being said, you're not a population of people. You're a single person, and everybody has the ability to have whatever side effects they're going to have. And so if you're one of those unlucky people that truly does have myalgias with your statin, the good news is there are things that we can do. So we're going to start with the guideline recommended dose of atorvastatin. But if that doesn't work, a lot of people who can't take this can take a much lower dose of another one. The guidelines actually recommend for this patient that you stop the atorvastatin, see if the myalgias get better, and then re-challenge with the same statin to sort of prove to the patient that it works. This is one area that I don't tend to go along with the guidelines because I think that patients are kind of primed to refail the same statin. So I usually will switch to another statin. And in this case, I would go from atorvastatin to rosuvastatin. Probably also can try pravastatin or pitavastatin, which have less myopathy than some of the other statins in clinical trials. So what I would do with this patient is probably offer to start on a low dose of rosuvastatin. And there's actually some case series data that are well published out of the Cleveland Clinic that you can even do every other day dosing because the half-life of rosuvastatin is so long. So figure out the lowest dose that they're willing to take, you know, start with once a week, go to every other day, and then slowly creep up the dose and always repeat the lipid panel. I think it's super validating to patients to see their LDL cholesterol going down once they're back on. And then the other thing that have a little bit less data is there's some evidence that maybe vitamin D deficiency increases myalgias. So you want to check that and treat that. And then it's probably just a placebo, but I've had some luck with patients taking CoQ10 and improving their myalgias and being able to take a statin. One of those patients is actually my father. So 
it's worked, though I'm not sure if it's in, in clinical trials, it hasn't panned out to be a cure-all, but it does seem to help some patients be able to tolerate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Just like Anne-Marie said, I tend to use it in my practice in the high-risk primary prevention. I tend to go with resuvastatin exactly for that reason. Uh, the longer half-life and then the fact that it's a bit more hydrophilic, that also tends to, in certain cases, lead to less intolerance. The other thing I will say, too, is that in primary prevention, the management of statin intolerance is obviously very different than in secondary prevention. But I've also found some luck at times with every other day dosing in some patients that I cannot do the things that Anne-Marie has already mentioned, where I've rechallenged with the same statin or switched to another high-intensity statin on a daily basis. And I've had some luck there as well. And I, too, have had some luck with CoQ10 and maybe a placebo effect as well, because we don't have really good concrete data. And of course, in the secondary prevention realm, there's an indication for PCSK9 inhibitors for statin intolerance as well. The key is just making sure you document uh, very well to help streamline and get it approved. Incredible. And I think uh, Dan just uh, joined the call. Hey, Dan, do you want to say hi? Oh my gosh, guys, I've been thinking lipids all day long and I was kind of like hoping the cases would work out. So I'm really glad. Sorry I'm late, but I'm super glad that I get to be here and say hello. Great, Dan. Well, Good to hear you. Yeah. yeah, thanks, guys. Nice to meet you, Dan. Fortunately, Nishant and I have really long answers. So <laughs> no, this no, is like going amazing. on forever. So we, we decided no, to drag it out perfect. to wait for you. It's perfect. It's perfect. Great. Thank you so much for going over your steps for addressing statin intolerance. I think this is a really common problem that we see all the time. And Dr. Navar, I love what you said. Um, and I'll quote, you're not a population of people, you're a single person. And I think that can be so validating for a patient and help you build an alliance and really address what's in front of you. So I think I'm going to use that from now on. Our next patient is Deborah Debicus, who's a 59-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes mellitus. Her A1C is 7.2 with diet and metformin. She also has a history of hypertension, morbid obesity, and active tobacco smoking. Her fasting lipid panel showed a total cholesterol of 210, HDL 39, triglycerides 300, and LDL 111, while on resuvastatin 10 milligrams daily. So Dr. Shaw, what's your approach to risk stratification in patients with diabetes? Should she be on a statin? And if so, what dose intensity is appropriate for her? And where do you stand on the use of long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids after they reduce it and the strength trials? Yeah, great case. So diabetes alone has significant cardiovascular consequences. And we've seen across many cohorts where patients with diabetes do worse than those without. Therefore, in my mind, it's important to not only place these patients on statins, but also make sure their other risk factors are very well controlled, such as hypertension, stopping smoking if they're smoking, dealing with obesity, and other risk factors that kind of come along. My personal approach has really been in line with the guidelines uh, in that I place patients with diabetes on at least a moderate intensity statin, if not a high intensity statin. I like to drive their LDL as low as I can within the context of primary or secondary prevention as both of those have various uh, different thresholds. Of course, now with more imaging modalities and technology, we're starting to really identify a lot of high-risk primary prevention that a lot of us in the world of prevention sort of treat as secondary prevention in terms of how aggressive we are with their LDL. And I also emphasize very good and strict lifestyle modifications to ensure that they essentially keep their risk optimized moving forward. A good diabetes regimen here is also essential. We have learned in recent years 
in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, the impact of STLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, which CardioNerds has done an amazing job in educating us on. And I think an important point here, as you mentioned, a primary prevention patient, is that if you look at the Claritimi-58 trial, you look at you know the cannabis trial, there's actually a good proportion of patients who are actually high-risk primary prevention in those trials. So, you know, I certainly see a role for these agents in diabetes management more for cardiovascular outcomes as more data is going to come along. I think it's a very fantastic field and just good for cardiology in general. But in terms of lipid management, I think statin therapy here is crucial. Now, to move along into the reduce it trial, the strength trial, long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. You know, as we all know, many patients with diabetes do have uh, difficulty with triglycerides. And elevated triglycerides in general, the first line medical treatment for triglycerides up to 500 are statins. But at the same time, you also want to make sure you've controlled the other secondary reversible causes of elevated triglycerides, like uncontrolled diabetes, other dietary issues, medications that patients could be on. And despite these things, you know, if your triglycerides still remain above 500 or very elevated, then you start worrying about things like risk of pancreatitis, which historically agents like fibrates have been used with little cardiovascular outcome benefit, but really just to help drive the triglycerides down to avoid other complications. Now, unfortunately, fibrates are not the best tolerated in certain situations and also have several drug interactions. But, you know, the reduced trial, which we all have heard of, recently put triglycerides on the map in terms of thinking about when we want to risk stratify some of these really high-risk patients. And it was a landmark trial that showed cardiovascular benefit with the fish oil ethyl when added to stable statin therapy in people that either had prior ASCVD or diabetes with an additional risk factor in a triglyceride level over 150. Now, importantly, ethyl, also known as Basipa, is a pure EPA compound, which unlike other fish oils, is different because other products have a combination of both EPA and DHA. I make that point because the compound used in the strength trial had a combination of both EPA and DHA. And so whether or not that played a role or not in the difference in the results, I think is hard to say up front because the trial has, the results have not really been published. But I do think that EPA is playing an important role here, either through antithrombotic mechanisms, anti-inflammatory mechanisms. And even in the reduced trial alone, we saw that independent of triglyceride lowering, there was still a cardiovascular benefit in patients on icosapentethyl. So that being said, I personally do use uh, icosapentethyl given the amazing results of the reduced trial in these secondary prevention or high-risk diabetics triglycerides over 150. And the ADA guidelines have also incorporated the use of this medication. And I imagine the AHA and ACC guidelines will also be updated to incorporate it. I'll just pipe in a couple of additional thoughts on triglycerides. So just to keep it simple, we treat triglycerides for triglycerides sake when they're over 500 to prevent pancreatitis. Between 150 and 500, we're not actually using icosapentethyl to lower triglycerides. In fact, if you look at data from the reduced trial, it looks like the benefit was independent of triglyceride lowering. The difference is that Reducit used a triglyceride cutoff of 150 in people with diabetes or established cardiovascular disease 
as their inclusion criteria. So we can think of triglycerides of 150 or above as a trigger to consider icosapent ethyl, but you're not actually treating the triglycerides themselves. And, and then the next point that's really critical is that this is only the case for the prescription formulation of icosapent ethyl. Supplement fish oils, which you buy in the like nutrition aisle of grocery stores, are not regulated by the FDA like prescription formulations are. They have a lot of impurities. They can be oxidized, and they don't have nearly the same concentration of the active ingredient, EPA, that the prescription formulation does. And then perhaps most importantly, there's been two large recent randomized trials of supplement dose fish oils, the VITAL trial, which looked at a primary prevention population, and the ASCEND trial, which looked in people with type 2 diabetes, showing no benefit. So I often will have patients stop their supplement fish oils, which incidentally can also raise their LDL cholesterol and do not lower their heart disease risk. And if their trigs are over 150 and they have heart disease or diabetes, I'll talk to them about icospenethyl. Thank you so much, Dr. Navarre. This is, uh, that was super helpful. So uh, can I just clarify, you said treat, we're, we're basically treating the trig, triglycerides for triglyceride's sake or not for triglyceride's sake? Yeah, over 500, you treat for the triglyceride's sake. So over 500, you lower triglycerides because when they're that high, if your fasting trigs are over 500, then after you eat, you're mm. up in the thousands. And that's when your risk of pancreatitis goes up. So you treat triglycerides for triglycerides sake over 500. And then between 150 and 500, you use triglycerides as a marker of benefit of icosapenethyl, but not to actually lower the triglycerides. You use it as a, as a trigger to see who should benefit from treatment or not. Wow. Thank you so much. I actually, that is such a clarified point and something that I never really thought about that way. And by the way, for everyone, this is Dan. I'm popping in in the middle of the script. Ahmed and Kareem were so nice enough to let me join. So I am really grateful for them and not shutting me out, even though I'm late to the recording. But I also just wanted well, to take this to, opportunity. To be fair, you were in the cath lab. So, you know, that's important. fair. I, that's fair. I was uh, in the cath lab doing the right thing, doing my job. But nonetheless, I'm so appreciative. And I'm, I'm particularly excited because I have to say that Nishan Shah has been somebody that has been such a mentor to me for so many years. I literally walked into intern year, had no idea how to even find the bathroom. I was totally lost. And they had appointed Nishant to, I think they basically made him my personal appointee because they knew I'd probably be at a loss. So he was there one-on-one, -on -one, elbows with me, teaching me how to put in orders. It was just a life-saving situation and really made me feel so comfortable on my first day. And then, like, fast forward to first-year cardiology, I go to ACC conference. It's my first conference. I'm super excited. I look around, and all my co-fellows know everybody else there. I don't know anybody. I feel like such a loser and a loner. And then all of a sudden, I see Nishant in his very very beautiful suit. And uh, he was visiting from Cleveland Clinic. I was at Hopkins. I ran over to him and I was like, he's my friend. I know people here too. And uh, <laughs> that basically also made me feel very comfortable. So uh, with that tangent. Oh my gosh, Dan, wait, I have to shout out to anybody that's listening that went to a conference or that will go to a conference and feel totally alone, like you don't know anybody and this is miserable and everybody else knows everybody. I had that exact same experience when I was a resident and, and I thought everybody knows everybody and this is horrible. And the truth is we'll meet everybody and then you'll be tired of meeting everybody and you'll wish that you could go someplace where you didn't know somebody. So you didn't have to like wear normal clothes. So 
just a just a, a note of hope to anybody that's listening that feels lonely at a conference. I just stick with it. I promise there's lots of friends that you're gonna make and this is a really fun group to Oh be my here. gosh, I totally it's agree. Awesome. I'm still Absolutely. on the up climb where <laughs> I'm we can only hope that everyone can find her in Ashant one day. Yeah, oh, man. Exactly right. Dan, I will always hang out with you no matter what. You you can always count on me, buddy. I miss you. Yeah, it's been great. Anyways, on that detour. But, and by the way, uh, everybody, we're in the COVID era and we talk as if we are going to get out of that because we are super hopeful that that eventually happens and we will all convene at a conference and definitely come say hello to the Carter nerds. Okay, but back to lipids because this is a very important topic. We're going to discuss another case. Dilip Dilipida is a 35-year-old man with a very strong family history of premature ASCVD. His PCP sent him to our clinic after a lipid panel showed an LDL of 220 milligrams per deciliter. He's otherwise healthy and plays cricket regularly without limitation. He's actually confused. He's like, why am I even seeing a cardiologist? I don't have heart problems. Okay, Dr. Shah, what would you do for this young man? Yeah, this patient has all the flags that pop up in my mind to signal a familial hypercholesterolemia. And he is otherwise young with an extremely elevated LDL and a strong family history. You know, in clinic, I would inquire actually about a first degree family history here, you know, to see has he had any first degree relatives with premature cardiovascular disease. I would examine him uh, and I'd look for xanthomas which are large nodular cholesterol-rich deposits under the skin. Oftentimes, we see these on the tendons or extensor surfaces. I'd look for xanthothemias, which are just sharply, or smaller, but sharply demarcated cholesterol deposits around the eyelids and for a corneal arcus. No rare, but some patients have extreme LDL levels that we do sometimes see them. And these are just lipid deposits around the cornea. And then I would take his clinical history, his family history, his LDL, and I, in my mind, go through what is the pretest probability without any concrete genetic testing that he actually has a diagnosis of FH. The three most commonly used criteria are the Dutch lipid network criteria, the MedPed criteria, or the Simon Broom criteria. Now, all three of them take into account clinical, genetic laboratory values. The most popular one, the one I use a lot, is the Dutch Lipid Network criteria that sort of breaks people down into possible, probable, highly likely, you know, just a, a range of how likely they are without concrete genetic testing that they have FH. The one thing I like about it is that you don't necessarily need a genetic test to really, in your mind, diagnose somebody with FH. And, you know, genetic testing may not always be positive, as there are several mutations we just do not know about yet in patients with FH. Mutations that we do know about are those that are on the LDL receptor, the ApoB molecule, and the PCSK9 molecule. And these presentations can vary from heterozygous to homozygous, which homozygous FH patients are extremely, extremely at high risk and sick and often present very early on with severe ASCVD. And so in terms of what I would do for him, in my mind, he classified as a patient with FH. To treat him, I would most certainly put him on a high-intensity statin therapy up front to get his LDL down as low as I can. You know, the guidelines will say at least 50% or less than 100 in a primary prevention setting, whichever is lower. Additional agents to include if you are not there yet is ezetimibe and PCSK9 inhibitor, which there is certainly an indication for FH. And Anne-Marie very nicely also talked to us about vampidoic acid, which also has an indication in patients with FH as well. 
That's my approach in these patients that are primary prevention. I really want to drive their LDL down to optimize their risk. And I also talk to them about their families. I talk to them about discussing with first-degree relatives if they've not gotten lipid panels to sort of start a cascade screening process just to catch more people. Because, you know, one of the things about FH is that despite how much we know about it, it's still pretty underdiagnosed. It's missed. Oftentimes, we don't really find it until someone's first event. We certainly want to prevent that. And, you know, there's a lot of cool research out there right now and using machine learning algorithms to help identify and help speed up the process of cascade screening. And now that so many people are on EMR using markers in the EMR to raise flags, you know, just like our patient, you know, hey, you maybe think about FH in them. So, that's my approach in a patient like the one you described. To note, one thing that Nishant did not say is he did not calculate this patient's 10-year risk score. And that is the right thing to do because the 10-year risk score is not made for people with familial hypercholesterolemia. And the guidelines say anybody with an LDL cholesterol over 190 who's an adult needs to be on a high-intensity statin. So this includes people in their 20s and 30s. So this is a do not pass go, do not check a 10-year risk, do not do a CAC score. These patients have toxic levels of LDL cholesterol floating around, causing disease, and need to be on treatment. Thank you for pointing that out, Dr. Navar. And that's a really, really important pearl and just highlights even more so the importance of taking a proper family history in, in all of our patients, because without that, you really wouldn't know how to stratify them appropriately and, and guide management. So let me tell you about our last patient, Miss Ather Oma. She's a 52-year-old woman with a history of hyperlipidemia aortic stenosis of a tricuspid aortic valve status post SAVR four years ago and a recent end STEMI status post PCI to the LED three months ago. She has a strong family history of early heart attack and stroke. Her LDL is 140 despite a torvastatin 80 milligrams. And due to her early coronary artery disease and aortic stenosis, her PCP checked an LP little A level, which came back as 95. So Dr. Navar, I have a few questions for you. One, how do we keep Miss Oma healthy down the road? Two, what is her LDL goal and how do we get there? And lastly, what are your thoughts about her LP little A level? So this is a great case because there's a couple of teaching points. The first is that atheroma would have not had a 10-year risk that put her in an intermediate risk zone, and yet she spent probably two decades, if not longer, of her life with an elevated LDL and an elevated LP little a and a high family history. So this is the reason why we look at these risk enhancers in people who don't otherwise meet criteria and think about statins early to prevent disease. So just a plug for prevention. The second pearl in this one is actually around her LDL level. So somebody who's on a Torva 80 with an LDL of 140, nine out of 10 of those patients are not taking a Torvastatin 80 milligrams. So if you look back to her historical lipid levels, you might see that she was 70 at one point and now she's back up to 140. But if this is your only measurement, the first thing to do is to talk to her about adherence. And if she says, I've been taking it every single day, not missed any doses, 
then you think, well, if she's 140 on 80 of Atorva, then she probably was over 200 before she got started. And then you're actually back to the last case, and you're thinking that this is probably somebody that has FH or may have FH, and you would talk to her about having her first-degree relatives make sure they get their cholesterol checked. So those are lipid-related points on this one. Now about the LP little a, her LP little a is extremely high. Although niacin can lower LP little a levels, it does not lower heart disease risk. So while some people will treat with niacin, most will not. LP little a, just side note, is another lipoprotein. It looks like an LDL particle. It's got cholesterol ester and triglycerides and even an ApoB molecule stuck on it. But it also has this other protein around it that makes it act a little bit differently than an LDL particle, but it's highly atherogenic. Um, unfortunately, statins don't lower LP little a. PCSK9 inhibitors do a little bit, but really we're currently without treatment options that will lower LP little a and lower risk of heart disease through that pathway. There are therapies coming out, some like specific antisense therapies that are in the pipeline. And I, I think that this is going to change in a few years. So, you know, keep an eye out. But for now, what I tell people that have elevated LP little a is you've got high lipid-related risk. I can't treat this one piece of your dyslipidemia, so I need to treat the other side as aggressively as possible. So we need to get this person's LDL down as low as we possibly can. The guidelines, because of the cost of PCSK9, actually recommended that we start with azetamibe, and then if LDLs remain over 70, then we would add on a PCSK9 inhibitor. The reality is that had PCSK9 been cost-effective or, or lower-priced, they would have actually gone probably from statin direct to PCSK9. Because azetamibe only lowers you by about 15%, you're not going to get her LDL nearly as low as you want it on azetamibe alone. And so this is one of the cases, if the insurance covered it, if her out-of-pocket cost wasn't too high and she was willing to take it, I would actually go straight to a PCSK9 inhibitor because I want to get her LDL cholesterol in the 50s or less range, and you're just not going to get there with azetamibe alone. Yeah, absolutely. And additional point too that I'd like to add is that in patients that have elevated LPA, as Anne-Marie very nicely pointed, the LPA molecule in itself actually has a core of about 45 to 50% LDL. And so standard assays for LDL, they don't distinguish how much of that LDL is actually LDL bound to LPA versus free LDL alone. We have a few sort of poor man's equations, I guess, if you will, you know, one that I kind of use sort of in gestalt in my mind when I see patients with elevated LP in my clinic is what their LDL is calculating at minus 0.3 times their LPA in milligrams per deciliter. So in this particular case, with the LP of 95, it puts the free LDL calculated closer to like 112, 111. And so oftentimes the patients that have extremely high elevated LPA, you will also see the effect where you put these folks on statins and you put these people on these lipid lowering agents and you cannot drive their actual calculated LDL number down. And so that's something to just keep in mind as well. I would say the other thing too, that's interesting in this case to note, you know, is that you know, the patient has an elevated LPA, but also has a history of a SABR. And you would ask, well, why is that? Well, it may be degenerative, potentially. There are all the reasons to have aortic stenosis, but LPA has actually been shown in Mendelian randomization studies to actually be causal in AS development as well, particularly in younger patients. And so it's a very interesting point in this particular case. Yeah, and I think we probably would be remiss if we didn't just, for the listeners, 
do a quick review of the guidelines in secondary prevention. So we used to treat everybody the same in secondary prevention. If you had any ASCVD, you got a high-intensity statin. Now the decision in the guidelines about using a PCSK9 inhibitor or not, because of the price, is actually they recommend that we identify those who have ASCVD who are very high risk. And you can look up the guidelines, but people with polyvascular disease, recent events, other comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, smoking, there are these additional high-risk conditions where if you're very high risk and your LDL cholesterol is over 70 on a statin and azetamibe, you would add on a PCSK9 inhibitor. So they actually currently do not recommend PCSK9 inhibitors for every single secondary prevention patient over 70. But this is a patient with a recent event, a, a pretty high LDL cholesterol. And so assuming she has coverage, she was definitely going to benefit from treatment. Wow, thank you so much. Everything is just absolutely incredible and really blowing on my mind. We actually have an add-on patient for you guys. So Hi. I'm just going to run it by you. I hope you have a few minutes. <laughs> This is going to be amazing. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of listeners who have this sort of question. All right. So I'm going to introduce you. It's actually two brothers. There's Mr. Salmon Sardinia and his brother, Just Tuna Fish. And they are pretty obsessed with the dieting fads. They kind of try out different diets. They don't like the Mediterranean and the Dash. They're not convinced of the evidence. So they try out all the other cleansers and everything like that. Anyways, recently they got really into the keto diet. And they've been having a lot of success and they've been winning all their competitions for their weight loss. So they're making bank. But one of them realizes that maybe they should talk to their doctor about it in terms of their lipids because one of them has hypercholesterolemia at baseline. Are there patients that are more susceptible to diet and are there patients that should be tracking themselves when they're on high fat kind of diets? And should everybody be tracking themselves on high fat? Should people get a baseline before they embark on some of these type of high fat diets? What's your thoughts? This is where I think it's really important that we not just look at LDL cholesterol levels, but actually start to think about particle composition and the ApoB level. Because you can often see increases in LDL cholesterol without a corresponding increase in ApoB. So you're essentially packing more cholesterol ester into the same number of particles. And that probably doesn't increase your cardiovascular risk. It certainly doesn't compared to increasing the number of particles that you have. So if somebody's gonna, I, I actually, given the mixed data around which diet is best, I generally support my patients' choices around diets, particularly if they work. So if they find a diet that works with their lifestyle, that allows them to lose weight in a sustainable way, I'll work with them to monitor their cholesterol and, and tell them up front, if this totally makes things out of whack. We may need to put you on a statin or up titrate your therapy, but let's see how it goes. And so I do get a baseline, a lipid panel with an ApoB so that I can track that. And then I'll repeat a lipid panel with an ApoB at follow-up. Probably it depends on how aggressive they're doing with their diet. In general, you do six weeks follow-up after you start a new therapy. So if you think about a diet, you probably need to be on that for a while before it starts making big differences. So um, and my patients who are going on big diets, I'll see them in two to three months and repeat lipid panels. There's not a lot of guidance here. I'm curious, what do you do, Nishant? Yeah, my practice is identical. We have a very deep conversation about what to expect. I personally also like to support diets that my patients are very motivated to try to do. It's a very data-free zone. You know, Anne-Marie, I think that this is a great area that 
we should definitely look into more in terms of outcomes, especially with different diets, such as the ketogenic diet, where you start seeing LDL levels that are higher than they've ever been in patients who are doing the diet correctly. And so I think that there's a, a role here as well for particles. And I do also measure ApoB as well in these patients. And I follow them along just, just like you. That's super helpful. Actually, uh, I totally curbsided you because uh, I have salmon sardinia. No, and this is not a recommendation for anybody, but I've had a lot of success with the keto diet. Okay. You, you guys can bill me later independently if my insurance uh, is willing to pay for both. Yeah. Now, you do need to be careful to talk to people about any supplements that they're taking and any over-the-counter stimulant things that may be weight loss. Those can be risky. And so I generally steer my patients clear of dietary supplements because there's just no data around their safety. We don't know how well what they do to interact with other things. But so I'm, I'm very supportive of whatever diet people want to do. And I'm generally not supportive of a bunch of untested vitamins and supplements. Dr. Shah and Navar, we want to end our episode with asking each of you what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention. Wow, there's so many things that come to mind. I, th I find prevention such a fascinating area in cardiology. But, you know, if I had to, and I just mentioned one that I'm just thinking about now is just the prevention community is just such a special uh, community. It's just got so many great people across the nation that just want to do good and combat cardiovascular disease and, and are just such great educators and, and mentors. And I'm very lucky to have amazing colleagues like Anne-Marie and, and so many others at Duke. And it makes coming to work really awesome to just talk about fascinating cases, learning from each other, bouncing ideas off of each other, and collectively taking care of patients as a group. And so I think that definitely is a heart flutter moment is just having so much fun in, in taking care and preventing cardiovascular disease. So Nishant, you took it from me. I was going to go with the people. So I'll, I'll have to pivot. And I, I was that medical student that like loved every rotation <laughs> and thought I was going to be every kind of doctor. And then I actually did a med peds residency because I still couldn't decide what kind of doctor I wanted to be. And I think what I like most about prevention is that it's like the broadest field and encompasses everything in cardiology. So we have like cool, innovative, cutting edge new therapies. You have the behavior change element and the risk communication and the kind of uh, behavioral pieces, which are really cool. You have broad population health because we have therapies that are super cheap and super effective that can be used in large numbers of populations that like shift entire populations of disease and health. We have EHR research. There's all sorts of cool epidemiology where we get to do fun data science and work with awesome new analytic techniques and new machine learning regression algorithms. And then other innovation like health tech and home blood pressure monitoring and cool sensors. Like you can, as a prevention person, literally claim any space as your own because you can even prevent complications and secondary prevention and call it prevention. So I think prevention is the greatest because it's literally everything and you can never be bored because there's always something fun and new to do. Wow. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Navar, this was just such an incredible discussion, incredibly high yield. We learned so much. I wish actually that I'd had this to listen to as a resident myself. 100%. Your, your passion for cardiovascular prevention is honestly just infectious. And we started uh, off with the story and I've got to say this is just the best story time. So we can't thank you enough for spending your evening with us cardio nerds. 
Well, thank you guys for having us. I'll just end with a shameless plug. I'm on the board for the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. It's free for residents and fellows to join. So if people want to learn more about prevention, you can join us online and join a community of other folks like me and Nishant who do prevention. That's sort of beyond the ACC and AHA. If you're really into prevention, you can join us in our group too. Hi, this is Ahmed Kara. I am President of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and Professor of Medicine, Director of Preventive Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds Podcast. What an amazing job these folks do, and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. Thank you.